Well, good morning, Summit Church. I want to say a special hello to some of what really are my best friends that are right now meeting together with us all across the triangle. We are one church that meets together every weekend in several different locations. Uh, so those of you that are at North Raleigh, at our West Club campus, at our North Durham campus, um, those of you that are various Briar Creek venues, I want to say a special word to those of you that are uh, at our 11 o'clock Briar Creek North venue. Um, I am right now, as I'm speaking to you on a plane, uh, headed with my youngest daughter down to Orlando, Florida, where we have about 140 of our summit students that, um, that are serving on a summer mission project down there uh, in the city of Orlando. Um, really, throughout the summer, we send a, a lot of students uh, in different places. Um, Southeast Asia, we have a team that's there right now. We have a team that just got back from New York City. Um, we've got about 30 students that stay here in, in Raleigh-Durham for the summer and help us minister to our city. Um, then we have 140 that are down in Orlando, and I'm going down to speak to them right now, and the only way I could do that uh, was to, to get there on time was to leave um, in the middle of the 11 o'clock service, and so uh, that's why I'm addressing uh, you here on video, but glad you're here and know that the Word of God can speak really clearly um, regardless of whether uh, I'm standing here live or whether or not you're here to the, vi to the video, and if the video really bothers you, uh, you might need to do a heart check to see if this is more about Jesus Christ or more about a particular live experience, okay? That's the last negative thing I will say today. Um, we, are, we are right now in the second week of a series that we have entitled Homewreckers. Um, it's called Homewreckers, not because it's named after a burrito at Moe's, although that would be uh, good in and of itself, but it's called Homewreckers because we're taking a look at some of the things that uh, corrode our relationships and destroy our homes. Um, and we're going to take a look this week at a second look at the subject of work. And you say, well, why work? Because, I mean, you know, we're talking about the home, and so why are we talking about the workplace? Well, here's why. Now, I think it's fairly, you know, obvious. A lot of the stress that you and I bring into our homes is stress that we bring in from the workplace. For many of us, our home lives are not in balance because our work lives are not in balance. That's where we spend the majority of our time. And I would just contend to you that if, if we could ever get our work lives into balance, it would resolve, not all, not all, but it would resolve many, some at least, of the issues that we face, that we face at home. And so that's why we're studying that. We made available to you for your summer reading list um, a book called Rescuing Ambition. Uh, last week, so many of you bought it that we sold out at every single campus. Uh, and so uh, we have more this week, so if you didn't get one then, you can go back and pick up one now. And, uh, and get one of those. It'd make great uh, summer vacation reading and would encourage you to, um, to add it to your repertoire. For most of us, our adult lives, the majority of our adult lives is spent at work. And I have explained to you that, in my opinion, the church has done a patently bad job at preparing you to follow Jesus at work. We, we talk about following Jesus as if it is primarily something that you do after hours something you do when you volunteer at the church after your job is done, um, where you get involved on the weekend, you get involved in a small group, and that's how we talk. We're like, hey, you, know, you want to serve Jesus? Be involved in your church. You want to serve Jesus? Be involved in a small group. You want to serve Jesus? Go on a mission trip. You need to give generously. And of course, all those things are important. They really are. But what I really want you to learn is how to serve and follow Jesus eight to five Monday through Friday, where you spend the majority of your week. Now, I explained to you last week that serving Jesus in the workplace is not, not an afterthought in the Bible. You remember I told you how many miracles there were in the book of Acts? Do you remember this? Forty miracles in Acts. You remember I told you how many of them happened outside of the church in the workplace? You remember what that number was? That's right. I said 37. I was wrong. I was wrong. I went back and counted them this week. 39 out of 40 miracles in Acts happened in the workplace. So in other words, I was wrong in that I wasn't as right as I actually thought I was. That's how I prefer to see that one. The whole point, though, is this for you. Listen, what that means for you is that the place that God wants to work is not in here through me. The place that God most wants to work is out there through you. I feel like that's fair, right? I mean, seriously, if 39 out of 40 miracles in the only church history that we have that was inspired by the Holy Spirit has 39 out of 40 times him doing something not in the church but outside the church, where does that tell you the power of God wants to be? Yeah, I want the power of God to be on my messages. I want us to experience unbelievable things here. But you realize that as much as the power of God we know is in this place, that's only 140th of what God wants to do in our community. He wants to manifest himself not in here through me but out there through you. 
Here's what else I explain, or actually, I've never explained this. Um, Of the 52 parables Jesus told, 52, 52, 45 of them had a workplace context. Jesus had 12 disciples, 12. All 12 of them came from the business sector, all 12 of them. Not one of them was called out of the seminaries or the religious establishments. I waited until our seminary students went home for the summer before I, I brought that little nugget out. I got nothing against seminary students. I'm a seminary boy. We know that. I'm just telling you that when God chose his disciples, he chose them out of the business sector, not out of the seminary. I had the privilege of, of having a great model of this growing up. My mom and my dad were the strongest Christians that I knew. And my dad was not a pastor. My dad was a businessman. He managed a, a plant, a Sarah Lee plant in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My mom taught biology, not theology, but biology at a local college. And so my first thinking about Christianity was from people who were learning to apply it in the so-called secular sector, right? So here, here's going to be my question for us today. Here's my question. What does it look like for your work to be Christian? What does it look like for your work to be Christian? What is it about a business that makes a business a Christian business? Now, first, let me acknowledge that there are a lot of really bad answers to that question. A lot of people think making a, a business Christian means that you attach some cheesy Christian bad name to it. Like, you know, you, you open a restaurant called the Garden of Eden, you know, the Garden of Eden, and that makes that Christian. Um, or having a hair salon called His Clips or A Cut Above. Or, or how about this, a coffee shop called Holy Grounds. Or one of my favorites, Hebrews. Hebrews, that's your coffee shop. <laughs> I have seen one, I kid you not. I can tell you where it is in the triangle, in fact. Some people think that it means that a Christian business is one where you force awkward evangelism moments into into work situations, kind of inappropriate, socially awkward things. Like I have an article up here from uh, uh, from the uh, the Associated Press, February 7th, 2004, uh, about an American Airlines pilot who in his pre-flight announcements um, had everybody, he asked everybody on board, he said, he said, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, would you raise your hand in, in the cab? How do I raise their hand? Then he said to everybody else on the flight, if you have questions about what will happen to you when you die or what will happen to you in eternity, you should ask the people who have their hands raised right now. I will be walking throughout the cabin in the flight, and if you have questions, I will be happy to answer them, and I'll be available after the flight. Well, I mean, it freaked a lot of people out, right? I mean, you imagine you're, you're pilot of your airplane asking you whether you're ready to meet Jesus or not. I, I, you can understand that. And American Airlines fired this guy. Um, I mean, you got I mean, to admire the guy's zeal, right? You're like, I, I admire the guy's zeal. Uh, he'd just gotten back, by the way, the article said, from a mission trip that he'd taken to South America. And he's just fired up about mission and wanted to apply it where he lived. And you're like, well, I admire that guy's zeal, but I couldn't do that either because I would get fired. So is that what it means for a business to be Christian, that you're creating inappropriate, awkward evangelism moments? That's what a lot of people think. A lot of people just think that work will never really be in and of itself Christian. They think work is like a necessary evil that you and I go through to provide money for our family. They think, well, what God really wants from my, my job is to make enough money to put food on the table, maybe get my kids into college, and then he wants me to give a bunch away to, to his work. Guys, and you know, listen, you know I don't want to discourage those things. We need people to volunteer here at the church. We had to turn away in this service. We had to turn away kids last week from the nursery because there weren't enough people to help. So yes, we need volunteers. What we do here is vital in reaching our community. And your generous giving toward what goes on here helps us reach the, 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 the million or so lost people that live in our city. So I'm not trying to skir- discourage that. I'm just trying to tell you there is more at work in what you're doing at work than simply making a bunch of money just to give it away. My, my, my daughter's yesterday. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm signed up to go on a summit mission trip with my daughter. It's a parent-kid mission trip we have going in October. And so I'm taking my oldest daughter, Karis, who's eight. And uh, she got word uh, sometime this week, I think it was on Friday, that the, the trip was going to cost $1,200 for her, uh, which I have, of course, let her know is her responsibility, not mine. And so she's been praying about where's this $1,200 going to come from. And uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, she also knows, by the way, that the kids in the Dominican Republic, many of them live in poverty, and so she's been thinking about that. So yesterday, I don't know where she got this idea. It was completely unprovoked. I didn't suggest this. We didn't talk about it. I look out my window, and I see her and my five-year-old carting this little table down to the roadside. On it, they had some lemonade, some juice boxes. She's put together some ice, 
and she's selling lemonade and tea and, and stuff on the side of the road as people drive by. She comes back in about, about, about two hours later, and she says, Dad, she said, we made $16.85. She said, do you think it'd be okay if I kept a dollar and Allie kept a dollar, and then we gave the rest, the $14.85, to the kids in the Dominican Republic? I said, well, sure, Ananias and, Saf and Sapphira, if you want to go down that road, that'd be fine. <laughs> No, I, I, I didn't say that. I said, yes, I, I think that would be fine. I think that'd be fine. But a lot of you, that's kind of how you see your job. You're like, well, I'll make money and I'll keep a little bit. And then the rest of it, I, I'm supposed to give it away. And you know, I don't want to discourage generous giving. But I'm just telling you, that's not the whole answer. I, I heard a, a very well-meaning pastor one time tell a story about going into a, a venue to, to speak. And as he was there, there was a, a, a custodian who was cleaning up getting ready for the meeting that night, and he looked at this guy, the pastor looked at this guy and said, hello, sir, introduced himself, said, is this your full-time job? And the man says, back very proudly, he says, no, sir, I'm a full-time servant of Jesus Christ. I just do this 40 hours a week to pay the bills. Now, there's, I mean, there's a sweet sentiment in that, but that's just wrong. As sweet as that is, it's wrong. Work is not a necessary evil that you and I put up with to make money so that we can serve Jesus Christ the rest of our week except for those 40 hours right in the middle. That's just not the way the Bible teaches us to think about that. So what I want to try and give to you this weekend are five different things from Scripture that make your work in and of itself Christian. Five things that make your work in and of itself Christian. Okay, now you guys know that my normal, my normal approach here is to take one passage of Scripture and kind of camp out in that particular passage, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm actually going to be kind of jumping all over the Bible, uh, and so I hope you'll give me the grace to do that because there's some things I want to try to tie together for you because I'm hoping when you come out of this, you're going to see your work and, and your, your, your calling, your vocation entirely different than you did when you came in. All right, five things that make work in and of itself, Christian. Number one, creation fulfilling creation fulfilling. Let's start with Genesis 2.15, way back at the original creation. Genesis 2.15 said, the Lord God, after he had made Adam and Eve and made the earth, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, you should notice that this is before the curse, which means that this is God's original plan for man. God had created this beautiful garden, and he put a, a man and woman in it, and before there was sin and before there was a curse they had a job it's very important to understand work was not a curse like before then they would have been lounging around having angels you know feed them bonbons and rub their feet work was something god put into the original creation it was something he designed us to do something he gave us the capacity to enjoy doing that word work there is a very interesting and important hebrew word it is the hebrew word abad Abad. Abad is a word that means more than just work. It means to prepare. It means to develop. It means to develop something. Do you remember the word that God used over and over again about creation itself? Whenever God created throughout the seven days, it says God made it and it was God made it and it was good. That's right. Now good is good, but good is not perfect. Perfect means cannot be improved upon. It means it's it's absolutely perfect. There's nothing you can do with it. Good means that while the essence of it is good, there's still some work to be done. When, when you guys see my wife at, at church, her hair and her makeup all exquisite, all dressed up, she's perfect. She's perfect. You cannot improve upon that. When I wake up next to her in the morning, she's good. All right? <laughs> all the raw materials are there of beauty. There's a little cultivating to be done. God put us in a world that was good, which, mean that we were, which means that we were to take the raw materials of the earth and develop them for his glory and for the benefit of other humans. I've heard it compared to the difference between a stockbroker and a security guard. If I were to take $1,000 to a security guard and hand it to him, if I come back in 10 years, what do I expect to get back from that security guard? $1,000, not a penny less, but I have no right to expect a penny more. That's what a security guard does. He locks it up and he keeps it. If I hand $1,000 to a stockbroker, there's a guy in our church here who manages my retirement stuff, and so if I give him $1,000 and I come back in 10 years, what do I expect from that money? 
Well, not a thousand dollars. I expect ten, twenty, thirty-five hundred. You know, a, a million dollars because I just expect him to do that. I, I expect him to take the raw material of money and to develop it, to cultivate it. Well, see, that's a better analogy for how God put us here on the earth, as He put us here as stockbrokers, not security guards. We were to take the, the the raw materials and develop them. The farmer, thus, listen. The farmer takes the raw materials of soil and seed and cultivates them into crops. The architect takes the raw materials of sand and cement and creates buildings for us to live in. The artist takes the raw materials of color or music and arranges them into art pieces that we enjoy. The lawyer takes principles of fairness and justice and codifies them into laws that benefit society. The insurance agent helps create systems that that protect us when we go through unexpected events in our lives. This is all part of God's plan. That's how he cares for us through the skills that he's given to different ones of us to take his creation and to develop it. God is sovereignly at work in our secular vocations, loving one another. Here's how Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, and I quote, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, know the Lord's Prayer? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And he does give us our daily bread. But how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, he does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, the person who prepared our meal. A guy named Gene Edward Veith wrote a book recently called God at Work, and he adds this. He said, we might today add the truck drivers who haul the produce, the factory workers in the food processing plant, the warehouse men, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys, and the lady at the checkout counter. Also playing their part were the bankers, development investors, advertisers, lawyers, agricultural scientists, mechanical engineers, and every other player in the nation's economic system. All of these were instrumental in enabling you to eat that morning bagel. Though God could have given it to you directly. He could, right, by miraculous provision. He, he once did that for the children of Israel. With the manna, he just dropped the bagels on the ground in the morning to let them pick them up. He could do that if he wanted. But that's not normally how he chooses to work. He works through human beings who in their different capacities and according to their different talents serve each other. What that means is that God is present in the world through your secular vocation, whether you're a believer or not. God is at work in that secular vocation, that secular talent that he has given to you, providentially caring for others through you. So in other words, your secular, ordinary work of farming or building or teaching math or making drugs is spiritually significant. Uh, making drugs, that is, if you're a pharmacist, okay? <laughs> if you are a South American drug lord listening to this by podcast, God is not glorified in what you're doing, okay? You never know. You never know. Um, God is at work in all those jobs, taking care of his creation and loving people. Here's a quick example, Exodus 31. I'll put it on the screen here for you. Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord said this to Moses. See, I have called by name Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Stop. Filled him with the Spirit of God. What comes next? Oh, you get filled with the Spirit of God. What, what? You get boldness for witnessing, right? You, you, the ability to preach, the ability to pray, write God's songs, speak in tongues. That's what happens when you get filled with the Spirit, right? Look at the next phrase. With ability and intelligence, knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, for cutting stones, for setting, and carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed unto him a holy ab, and have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God filled with these guys with the Spirit and gave them abilities, not as preachers, not as songwriters, not even as people who prayed in this situation, but he filled them with the Spirit, and they expressed that through their skill and the secular vocation that they had. And they were every bit as filled with the Spirit of God in doing that as Moses was in his preaching and leading. Some of you have felt this, have you not? Have you not felt this? You do something at work that you're good at, and there is something, I mean, it's strange. It's almost supernatural, and you don't even really know how to, to put it into words. But what's happening is whether, even, sometimes, even if you're not a believer, you are sensing the Spirit. You are sensing the glory of God that is being manifested through you in that secular vocation because he designs you that way and he is working in you that way. And you never knew how to articulate it, but this is exactly what's going on. Is that God is glorifying himself through that secular vocation. One of my favorite scenes of this, old movie, okay? For those of you born after 1980, I'm going to totally lose you on this. Um, the, uh, 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 there's a 1970s movie. 
Um, there's only like five good movies made in the 1970s. Rocky was one of them. I think Rocky II was in the 1970s. Star Wars, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire, okay? You may, how many of you have seen Chariots of Fire? Raise your hand. All right, put your hands down. Chariots of Fire is the true story of a missionary to China named Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell was from Scotland, and he was an extremely fast runner. So before he gets to China, um, the Scottish Olympic team asks him, this is way back in the 1930s or so, if he would represent them in the upcoming Olympics. Well, after praying about it, it feels like that's what he needs to do. His sister, who was going to be a partner of his in the mission to China, pulls him aside and says, says, Eric, what are you doing? There are people that are lost. They're dying and going to hell. They don't have time for you playing games, running. What eternal good does running do when there are people that are dying and going to hell everywhere? And Eric Liddell makes that famous statement that you might have noticed had you seen the movie where he says, he says, yes, Jenny. That's his sister's name. Yes, Jenny, I know that there are people in China who need Jesus, and I know that we will go and we will invest our lives there. But you see, when I run, here's the phrase, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. There is a glory that I am bringing to God as I'm running that I know it is God that is at work within me, and I know that I'm bringing glory to him because in some ways God made me to run. And that's how I am, I am, am deflecting glory back to him. Some of you have felt that in the job that you have. When you do your job, when you are leading, when you are putting together that corporation, when you are teaching, when you are developing, when you are building, you have sensed the pleasure of God at work inside of you, and you may not even have known what to call it. God gave you that gift to do business, to run. And here's something maybe even cooler. You'll probably be doing some form of that job even in heaven. I love Tim Keller's thoughts on this. He says, quote, when we get to heaven, ministers and doctors will have to have new job training, whereas architects and, arch and artists will not. Why? Well, you're not going to need somebody to heal your body in heaven. You're not going to need somebody yelling at you every week, telling you to live right. Right? So it means we all, uh, I got a question. How many of you, all of our campuses, how many of you are either in the medical profession or headed there or in the ministry profession or headed there? Raise your hand. Put it up real high. I got bad news for what looks like a majority of you, all right? You're going to have to get new job training in heaven. I'm already, by the way, lobby, lobby, lobbying for management up there when I, when I get a new job. Uh, either that or I want to be the stunt double for Vin Diesel. That's the other thing I, I'd, I've asked God if I could do. Um, we are, you, we're going to have to get new jobs. You don't need, you're not going to need me preaching the word of God to you. You're going to be in the presence of the word of God himself. But there are others of you that have been given gifts and skills that you will as far as we can see, be using on through eternity because God gave work not after the curse but before it, which means that after the curse is reversed, we're going to go back to what God originally created, which is to have jobs that bring glory to him and that benefit one another. See? So what I'm telling you is some of you need to rethink your job fundamentally. You need to think about your job as a gift that is given to you by God to develop creation for the glory of God and for the benefit of other human beings. And you need to have the attitude of serving one another serving other people in that job, not just making money. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Patrick Lincoln, your favorite business authors. Um, far as I know, not a Christian, but he wrote a book recently called Three Signs of a Miserable Job. Now, some of you immediately when I say that, you say, oh, I could write down three right now <laughs> just to describe my week. Three signs of a miserable job. And what he does is, is, is he gives you what these signs are, and one of them that really got a hold of my attention was he said, that one of the ways that work becomes miserable to you is when you disconnect it mentally from those to whom you're bringing help and happiness to through your job. The whole book is built around this kind of fable, this, this parable of a guy who um, retires from you know, corporate America and goes into um, a little pizza parlor that's struggling on the, on, the, on the verge of bankruptcy. And he takes over this pizza parlor, and one of the things that he notices is how bad everybody's attitude is in the pizza parlor. Um, they all do their jobs poorly. And so he teaches them, in part, how to start seeing how their jobs are making people's lives better. For example, he shows the delivery guy that when he gets people's orders right and he gets them to their homes on time, that helps those people have a great evening. And he can have a joy just in knowing that he's helping somebody have a great evening. He shows the cashier how smiling as she rings people up at the checkout counter helps people feel like they had a great experience in the money they spent eating out. All this, he says, contributes not only to the success of the restaurant, but to the enjoyment of the employees themselves. 
Glenn Coney goes on to say that there is a natural joy that we find in serving others. Here is the secret that Glenn Coney may or may not understand, because I don't know if he knows God at all, but here's the secret that he's talking about in that book. You have that kind of joy because God designed you that way. And all this secular book did was fall across something that the Bible's been teaching for years. When you see your work connected to God's creation mandate to develop the earth to his glory and the good of others, you'll start to get a sense of enjoyment and satisfaction out of it. So the first way that, Christian, that work is Christian in and of itself is that it is creation fulfilling and done with an attitude of service toward others. Here's the second way that work is in and of itself Christian. Number two, excellence pursuing. Excellence pursuing. This is going to be found in the book of Colossians chapter 3. The work that we do is Christian when we do it according to the highest standards of excellence because we are doing it first and foremost for God. Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it in, in word or deed, whether in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's the bottom line. Can you attach the name of the Lord Jesus to the quality of your job? Can you attach the name of the Lord Jesus to the quality of your job? That's what Paul is getting at here. In everything, give thanks to God the Father through him. Can you give thanks in your job? Yes, your bad job. Can you give thanks to him for the work that you're doing in it? Verse 22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now hold on for a minute. Some of you right there say, whoa, wait a minute. Is Paul condoning slavery right there? No. Two reasons. One, first of all, that word slave there really would be translated something more like what we would think of as an, in, an indentured servant. Right? That said, the whole indentured servitude thing, that was a very unjust socioeconomic system also. So I'm not trying to just get by it with that. What we really got to get, and this is a little deep, hang with me here. Um, what Paul is doing is speaking to people in a situation they're currently in. Paul is at this point not trying to foment a societal revolution. Why is that? Because if the Bible was written in a way that gave a political playbook, people would never get the real message that it was about our hearts, whether we are free or whether we are in chains, whether we are Democrats or Republicans, communists or capitalists, that we all need Jesus. We would miss that because we would get so consumed with the politics. That makes sense, right? I mean, I could preach about Jesus 51 weeks of the year here. I stand up and give one political sermon from this pulpit, and the, the, the Raleigh News and Observer, as far as they're concerned, that would be all I ever talked about. Because the moment you start talking about that, you just lose everything. Paul, at this point, is not trying to foment a revolution. Now, what he's about to say would actually sow the seeds that would end up undoing this societal injustice. So he just plants the seeds in there. But for the meantime, he's speaking to people in the condition that they're in. And he's saying to them, you guys that are in a very unfortunate place because you are in an unjust economic system, you still ought to realize that that work you're doing, you're not doing for that master. You're not doing for that boss. You're doing it for God first and foremost. Here's what's significant about that for you and me. Many of you find yourselves in bad jobs where you don't like your boss. Is that right? Some of you are like, wow, I feel like my job owns me. Well, for these people, <laughs> their boss literally did own them. And he's saying, even to them, the work that you do is not done for them. It's done for God. So if that's true for them, of course it's true for us. That those of us, whatever situation we're in, however poorly we are being treated, our jobs are done first and foremost, he says, for God. For God, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, for you are serving in all things the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, or read that, slacker. For the slacker will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality with that boss. In every job I do, in every assignment I complete, every chore I do at home, every paper I turn in in school, I am doing it first and foremost for Christ. C.S. Lewis talks about 
explorers who come across a valley that as far as they know has never been seen by human beings ever. And they come into that valley and they find some of the most beautiful flowers. And C.S. Lewis asked the question, we are the first people to have laid our eyes on this valley. Yet for seemingly hundreds, if not thousands, or tens of thousands of years, there's been these beautiful flowers that nobody's ever seen. Why did God put them there if nobody would ever see them? And C.S. Lewis says, well, the answer's obvious. Because God sees them. And God does some things just for God. And so Lewis continues very logically, thus even our work that nobody sees should still be done as an offering to God. Now guys, listen. You really want to get the world's attention, you start doing a great job for a boss who's a jerk or who won't give you a raise for your hard work. And that's why most people do a good job, right? You either like your boss or you got the possibility of more money, so you work hard to, to get the extra money to get the raise. But when you say, yeah, 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 but ultimately I'm doing this to love and serve God, not just to make more money, that gets the world's attention. And when they say, why are you working? Why is your work so diligent? Why is it so good? Regardless of whether or not you get recognized, regardless of whether or not you get a raise, and you're able to say, here's why. Here's why my motivation is different than yours, is I'm not just working for the paycheck. I'm working for the master. Let me get really nasty here for a minute. Can I, can I do that? Some of you, your job performance is a terrible testimony to Christ. Some of you students, your academic performance is a terrible testimony to Christ. Your mouth, or your t-shirts, or your bracelet might say that Jesus is Lord. But the way you conduct yourself at work says, I do whatever I feel like doing, which basically means I am Lord. So your mouth says Jesus is Lord, but the quality of your job says that you are Lord. The best thing that some of you could do at work is to keep your mouth shut about Jesus. Because... Your job performance is so poor and your attitude is so bad. Well, that's actually the second best thing you could do. The first best thing you could do would be to repent and start obeying this verse and then start working so diligently that it would bring glory to the God that you're serving in all situations regardless of whether people notice, regardless of whether you get reward, or regardless of the quality of your, your boss. Do you catch that whole thing with the slaves, masters thing? Do you get his point there? Paul was sowing into that culture the seeds that would ultimately undo the entire system of slavery. When people argued why slavery and, and indentured servanthood was unjust, they used these texts right here saying, see, Paul's saying that no person has really the right to, 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 to lord over another person. But he's just speaking to people in their situation and saying everything you do, everything you do is for God first, not for people. So the second thing that makes work in and of itself Christian is that it is excellence pursuing. Number three, third thing that makes work Christian, holiness reflecting. When it's holiness reflecting, this is also from Colossians 3. Listen, our work should make it obvious that we serve a God of justice, a God of fairness, and a God of kindness. Our work should reflect his character, which means that our work conforms to the highest standards of ethics. I, I, I do not know, honestly, all the answers here because each field has its own ethical issues, some of which I don't even know how to pronounce. But what I do know is that our work is to reflect the equity, justice, and kindness of God's character. So Paul says this in Colossians 4. Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, in every work interaction you have, you got a master in heaven to whom you will report. So you treat somebody unfairly because they either A, won't find out about it, or B, can't do anything about it. Paul says, well, you got a master in heaven who will find out about it and will always do something about it. You might be able to get away with cheating others, but you will never get away, he says, with cheating God. Some of you have this disconnect. You cheat and you cut corners at work. You short customers. All the while maintaining faithful church attendance as if God is happier with your participation at his house than he is with your emulation of his character in your jobs. You want to know what he wants from you is not more church attendance. What he wants for you is to walk in integrity and kindness and generosity and to reflect his character in the way that you work. So I, it's the same reason you should get so irritated at people when you tell me that, 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 that work at restaurants, that the worst day of the week to work is Sunday when the Christians come in after church because they don't ever tip. They leave tracks that say, here's a tip, find Jesus. You take that track and stuff it back in your thing and you show them the love of Jesus rather than just telling them about it. 
right? Well, it's the same way. You don't need to be verbally telling people at your work about Jesus before the quality of your work has demonstrated his justice, his kindness, his fairness, and the equity of your heavenly Father. Proverbs 11, chapter 1, look at this. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Abomination. That's a strong word, isn't it? Abomination is reserved for the strongest sins in the Bible. Sexual perversion, betrayal, murder, exploitation of the poor. Yet here you've got a false balance going in the same category. That means shorting the customer, not giving your boss who is paying you a full week's worth of work, getting paid for more than you're doing, cutting a corner, an abomination. It is an abomination when you do shabby work or that doesn't give your employer his money worth or your employees what they are due, an abomination. And some of you really ought to just think about that because you keep thinking that God's happy with you because you, you come to church a lot and you're pretty religiously active. God wants to see his character lived out in the way that you conduct yourself in the place where you work. That is the best offering to him. Worship is not just what we do in here with our hands raised. Worship is how we treat the customers and our employers. That's where you worship and reflect the character of God. Number four. Something that makes work inherently Christian is when it's redemption demonstrating. Redemption demonstrating. We're going to get this one from Luke 14, which we went over a couple weeks ago. But basically it's this. People who have been touched by the gospel think about more than just fairness and equity in their jobs because their whole approach to life has been redefined by what Christ has done for them. Heard a story one time of, a, of an advertising executive in New York City, Madison Avenue. Now, if you don't know much about the advertising world, that's the place that you go to get the, the job. I mean, that's like, that's Wall Street for bankers. Madison Avenue in, in Manhattan. Well, this guy has this job there. He is a believer. A girl um, from, you know, from one of the, the premier schools um, with an advertising program gets a job in his, in his pro- excuse me, take it back. She got an internship um, at his advertising firm. Um, internships are very competitive there. Uh, you don't get like two or three shots because it's cutthroat. Everybody's trying to get these internships. She makes a mistake after being there for three or four weeks. Cost the company $25,000. Now, in that world, you do not get a second chance. And she knew that her, her dreams of being on Madison Avenue were shot at that point. Well, her direct supervisor, this guy that I was telling you about who was a Christian, goes in in front of the board of directors and says this. He says, you know what? I'd actually like to take the heat for this one. I'm going to say that I didn't train her right, which may have been true, but really wasn't true. It was purely her mistake. He said, but I, I didn't train her enough. I, I probably should have done a few other things to help her get prepared for this. Will you let me take the hit? Because he had the social capital with that company to be able to absorb the hit. Will you let me take the hit instead of her? And the board of directors said, well, you do have a lot of social capital here. Capital here. You got a long history. We'll let you do that. So he absorbed the blow of her mistake. She comes in a few hours later, having found out what's happened, in tears. Comes into his office, and she leans down across his, his deck, desk, and she says, why? Why? She goes, they told me about this world here on Madison Avenue, that it's cutthroat. And the idea of somebody now, not only not cutting my throat, but actually cutting their own throat because of something I did wrong. Why would you do that? I've never heard of this in New York City. The guy smiled, and he said, well... He said, since you asked, I'll tell you that about 15 years ago, my life was profoundly changed by somebody who did something like this for me. Jesus Christ, when I had sinned so that I was now to be cast out of God's presence, Jesus Christ took my penalty into his body. And that has been so life-altering for me that whenever I see somebody in that situation that I can help, something in my heart just wants to do for them what Jesus has done for me. That is redemption demonstration in the midst of a job. This also means, redemption demonstrating means that you figure out how to leverage your business to bless those in need and how your business can be used to take the gospel to places that's not been known. It's what I, what I talked to you a few weeks ago about the third bottom line. You remember a few weeks ago in the sermon on Luke 14, I showed you that Jesus commanded his followers, you remember this, to throw their parties for people who couldn't pay him back. Throw the party of your life for those who can't pay you back. Don't throw your party and fill it up with people who just turn around and invite you to their party. No, no, throw the part of your lives for people who can't pay you back because that's what Jesus said I did for you. I threw my party, the party of his one life on earth, was not him angling his, his resources and his position of status so that we would all benefit him. He poured himself out, made himself nothing so that we could be saved and be enriched. 
He threw his party for us who couldn't pay him back. He said, if you're my follower and you get that, then you would take your resources and your position, which is not nearly as great as mine, by the way, but you're going to take that and you're going to leverage that for other people who can't pay you back either. And I said, one of the ways that you begin to do that in the business world is you think about other bottom lines besides just profit for yourself. For example, you start thinking about how your business can help the poor. Even if it's not the best financial investment, you think, I want to help empower people who otherwise wouldn't have that ability. You start thinking about the Great Commission bottom line. Where can I use my business to get the gospel in the places that it's never been? Redemption demonstrating means also that for those of you that God has blessed you with much, that he is giving you very lucrative jobs where you make a lot of money, it means you give away a lot of it to the Great Commission. Listen to me, that's why God gave you those resources and those talents and that ability. He didn't make you so good at what you are so you can make lots of money and just ratchet up your lifestyle. That's not what, what, what he gave you that as a stewardship of. You say, well, God gave me that, yeah, whatever. I was the one who went to school and I was the one who worked hard and I was the one who pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I was born poor and I did all this and I'm the one who's worked, I put in late hours, all this money, I earned it, oh really well whose air did you breathe the whole time yeah probably God's oh and that talent that you got that, and, and that desire that that drive where'd that come from it probably came from God something he put inside of you in fact you were born in the United States you you really tell me that if you were born as a a poor child in a slum in India that your life would have turned out the same be serious grace you have received grace. The fact that any of you aren't in hell right now is grace. And when you get that, when you get how much of your life has been fueled by grace, you'll start to naturally begin to share it with others. Leveraging your life for the Great Commission is not the calling of a sacred few. Leveraging your life for the Great Commission is the responsibility of every disciple of Jesus. I hear people say, well, I just don't, just don't. I just don't feel called to use my skill for missions or I don't feel called to give my resources away. What? What? That call to give away your resources and that call to leverage your skill for the Great Commission, that was known as the call to follow Jesus. There's no way for you to follow Jesus and not be leveraging your resources and your skill for the purposes of the Great Commission. Sometimes I feel like we invented this whole language of calling in the church just to mask the fact that the majority of people in church aren't really living as disciples of Jesus. So we got this special kind of called group and then the rest of us that are just spectators. The people that are fans of Jesus but not followers. Followers of Jesus are people, I'm not saying you all come into the ministry. I'm just saying they're, they're people who start to say, okay, how can the skills that I have, how can I use them for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God and for the great commission and for his kingdom and not my own? Which leads me to the last thing. Number five, fifth thing that makes business in and of itself Christian. Mission advancing. Mission advancing. That's going to be in Acts chapter 28, verse 14. I make this point with you guys a lot. But throughout church history, the gospel has gone forward on the wings of business. Study it. Study anybody's version of it. The gospel has gone forward most effectively on the wings of business. Even in the days of the first apostles. When the apostles were basically superheroes, guys like Peter and Paul and, and Philip and Andrew and Thomas, even in those days, merchants seemed to be able to carry the gospel around the world faster and more effectively than the apostles themselves can. You say, well, that sounds a little blasphemous. All right? Acts 28, verse 14. You know that Paul, his whole trajectory of his life is to take Christ where he's never been named, right? Isn't that Paul's trajectory? From Acts chapter 9, where Jesus appears to him on the road, Acts chapter 28, last chapter in Acts, that's what Paul is doing. He's headed to take Christ to places where he's never been named. So he wants to go to Rome. Why? Because Rome's the capital of the world. What a great place to start a church planting center from, right? Acts 28, 14, the climax of the whole book. We've been leading up to this point. Paul is just a couple of miles outside of Rome. Verse 14. And there we found brothers. Not like Paul's cousins that he knew from his family reunion. Brothers in Christ, and we were invited to stay with him for seven days. Not only brothers, but brothers who understood hospitality. And they're like, oh, Paul, you're a guest here. Why don't you come to our house? Show you a little Bible study we got going on. 
show a few palace guards that we've led to Christ. And so we came to Rome. I kind of hear a sigh in that. We came to Rome. Paul's in a rat race to take the gospel around the world to places Jesus has never been named. When he gets to Rome, he's greeted by other Christians who were not apostles. They were merchants, and they'd beaten him there. So I say to you again, merchants seem to be able to carry the gospel around the world faster and more effectively than even the apostles can. Stephen Neal, in fact, said this in his book, A History of Christian Missions, which is otherwise a pretty nerdy book. I'm going to read you the one really good part out of it, okay? But in point of fact, few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by apostles. Nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. Luke, the writer of Acts, does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneers who laid the foundation. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome, but they certainly did not found it. He goes on to point out that not one, not one of the major Christian church planting centers, Antioch, Alexandria, Rome, not one of them was founded by an apostle. And today, and today, the unreached mission field seems to be custom designed by God so that the kingdom, so that only kingdom focused businessmen and women can be the ones who can get the gospel into these most lost parts of the world. For example, most unreached peoples are found in something that missiologists refer to as the 1040 window. It's the 10th parallel and the 40th parallel. In between those is something they refer to as the 1040 window where the majority of unreached people groups live. They are primarily Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist. These are also countries in the 1040 window where you will find the greatest concentration of the world's poor. You have unemployment, ra uh, unemployment rates in these, in these countries ranging from between 30 and 70%. One source that I was looking at said that 50% or so of the population in the areas of the 1040 window are under the age of 20, 50%. And that unemployment rates are likely to soar in those areas in the coming years. Some estimates indicate that up to 2 billion young people are gonna be looking for jobs over the next 20 years. For example, Iran. I mean, that's an unreached people group, right? That's a scary place. That's a hard place for church planners to go into. Iran has at least 10 million unemployed right now, and in the next 15 years, 20 million more are gonna be searching for jobs. So how is Iran going to be reached? From our perspective, it's not gonna probably be through church planners. It's gonna be through businessmen and women. Now, I know this doesn't apply to all of you, but some of you have something that you can and you should do overseas. And I want to help you do that. That's what we as a church want to help you do. I want to help you discover that. We say 1,000 churches by 2050, many of those churches are going to be built side by side with businesses that you help us bring into those countries that we can go with you. I don't have all the answers. I don't. I can't lay out a plan for you exactly what it's going to look like, but let's discover it together. Let's start believing it together. Let's start praying about it. And why don't you start praying about what God has given you and say, let's enter into a conversation and let's all brainstorm. And let's say by 2050, we got a thousand churches all around the world in places that the gospel was completely shut off to, but your skill, your secular skill is what God used, just like he always has through church history to get the gospel into those places. You have a role. That's my whole point. Businessman or businesswoman, for all these reasons, your work matters. All these reasons. Creation fulfilling. Redemption demonstrating. Holiness reflecting. Excellence pursuing. Mission advancing. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that I've seen this model through my mom and my dad. My dad retired from Sara Lee a couple of years ago, was immediately hired back to be a consultant for them as they opened some plants in some of the countries that we would consider to be some of the most unreached countries on the planet. There he is able, over those two years, to mingle with and interact with some of their top businessmen. People I would have never gotten side to side with. Led one of them to Christ, planted the gospel in, in a few others, these are people that as a church planner, I would only have dreamed about being able to get up close to. And he's up with them, some of the influencers of society, and seeing them come to Christ. See, 
God has a purpose for you, and you may not even know what it is, and maybe you need to start thinking about it and praying about it. He got into that place and obtained that audience, not through seminary, but through business. So your work matters. It can make an eternal difference. And again, you say, well, what's all this got to do with the home? You're supposed to got to do with the home. Some of your lives, some of your jobs, they feel so meaningless, so purposeless, that you bring that into the home, and so you, you end up looking in your home for things that you really ought to be finding from living out God's plan for you. You're so bored in your job, you're expecting the home to do something for you the home was never designed to do. Living out God's plan was supposed to add this into your life, and you don't know how to do that. That's how this applies to the home. It's kind of a silly example, but I thought of this. Um, ever watch one of these game shows where some, fam- some guy wins a million dollars or some woman wins a million dollars, and they have all their, her, his or her family come up on stage? And they're all jumping around, and they're like, woohoo, we won a million dollars, and look like the happiest family, hugging each other, kissing each other. I'm enough of a marriage counselor to know, it's like, ha, <laughs> That's so fake. They're probably, they, are, they probably have all kinds of problems back at home. But in that one little brief moment, they're so ecstatic over that million dollars that that supersedes all of the petty problems they have at home. So what I'm going to tell you is if you could ever find the purpose that God had for your life, if you ever started to live out that purpose, it wouldn't cure all the problems in your home. But what it would do is it would add a a level of purpose into your life that would cause a lot of the stress at home to disappear because you would quit looking for in your home what you should be finding in the satisfaction of living out the plan of God in your life. You see, your entire attitude toward your work changes. What do I always tell you? What changes everything? The gospel. The gospel changes your attitude toward your work. The gospel begins like this. You were designed, you were designed by God with a purpose, a creation purpose. Psalm 139 says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have specific talents and skills. God put those in you. Some of you that aren't even believers are recognizing that. When you run, you feel his pleasure. The gospel continues that you and I traded what God had given us. Instead of using it for his glory, we turned it in on ourselves, and we became selfish with it. And that separated us from God and threw everything out of whack. The gospel is that God loved us so much that he came to earth, who leveraged his position and his resources, poured himself out so that you and I could be saved. And if you and I receive that as a free gift, if we ever get our minds around that and we embrace it, it fundamentally changes our attitude toward our work. Because we quit saying, instead of using all my stuff for me, I want to leverage my life, my resources, my talents, and pour them out for others, just as Jesus poured his out for me. The gospel transforms everything, even your work life. So we come back to the gospel. At all of our campuses, if you would, let's bow our heads and let's I want you just to enter into a time where you reflect on the gospel, always. Father, I pray for men and women in here who maybe for the first time, something in their heart said, I I understand this now, I get this. This is how I was made. Father, for those who have never surrendered to follow Jesus, Father, I pray that you you would put this so heavy in their conscience that before they leave our campuses today, they would have settle this eternal question. God, give them the courage to talk to that person who brought them today. And so that before this day is out, they would have trusted Jesus and begun a whole new life, following you a life of meaning and purpose and fellowship with you. God, for believers, bring us back to the sweetness, to the plan and the power of the cross. Let it transform not just our homes and not just our spiritual lives, but our attitude in the workplace. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.